Now we have two readings this evening. The first is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll read from verse 13 to 18. Firstly, can I say it is good to be back with you. Uh, never a privilege taken for granted to come to Bowness. Always nice to be back among you. Although I did threaten Alec that I wasn't going to come. But there we are. First Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And then over to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read from verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 51. <clears throat> Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must Put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And that is the word of the Lord. Just a brief word of prayer. Father, as we now turn to your word, we need and ask for your help. What we know not teach us, what we are not make us, and what we should be show us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't normally pick subjects because they've been requested. But there has been a request over 
recent months that we could look at some issues with regards to Bible prophecy. And I thought to myself, well, here's a very, very good place to start. It would appear that the world had gone mad. Evil had overtaken good. Very, very few people living righteous lives or even acknowledging God. And God was just about to act. I'm not describing the world today. I'm describing the world in Noah's day. A world where God was furthest from most folks' thought. And God spoke to Noah. And he began what in essence was 120 years of evangelistic ministry. Assisted by an ever-growing object lesson. The Lord had spoken. He had promised that he would judge mankind because of sin and it's the same sins that we have with us in our day and generation because of them refusing to acknowledge him or turn to him he said that the world would be destroyed his method a flood now what sort about that, you may say? Well, up until the flood, there had been no rain that fell from the sky. The ground was water from water rising from beneath, or by a mist that would cover in the morning. But, you know, I think as people witnessed Noah's preaching and his building program, I think they must have given him an awful time. They must have said and they must have thought, look at Noah, a stupid nutcase, ranting on about God, God's going to destroy the world, etc, etc. He's lost his mind. But Noah carried on preaching and he carried on building. And he preached, and he built, and he preached some more, and he built a boat. Interestingly enough, it was a boat that was nowhere near the water. He had built a boat on dry ground. And as the boat got bigger, the mocking got worse. But one day, the last piece of wood was put in place. The last tar was used to make it waterproof. Just as God had ordered, the animals were taken on board this boat. Exactly as God had planned. And once that bit was done, the second half of the prophecy would come to fruition. And I'm sure even as the animals were making their way into the ark, the mocking still went on. 
But you know, as the door closed, the rain began to fall. Something the world had never seen before. What was this? The water was welling up from the deep. And God's judgment was about to fall. And only those in the ark would be saved. When we consider what God says about a great rescue that will take place in a time yet future. It's true. Scripture says in First Thessalonians 4 verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep. Paul spoke about this subject and he did so with authority. Just as Noah had preached with authority. Paul does the self-same thing. This was not his pet idea. He says this is the word of the Lord. This was a revelation from God. Paul recognized the imminency of the event that we call the rapture. In fact, he spoke as if, and I believe that he meant it to be so, that as if the event could happen in his lifetime. Any moment of any day. And we would do well to take a leaf out of Paul's book. Because we too should be a people. Who are looking. And waiting. And are ready for that event. That will be over. In the twinkling of an eye. That's the mindset that we should have. In the back of our minds, never far from our thoughts, should be the notion that today could be the day. And if it's not today, if God gives us another day to live, we should have the attitude of heart that it could be that day also. That will keep us in a right relationship with God. When we come to the Lord's return, it is not something that is away down in the future, that is so far away that it's of little interest to us. No, the scripture tells us we are to live as if it is today, is the day of his appearing. In our reading in 1 Corinthians 15, we read of the trump of God, described as the last trumpet. Now, of course, we have trumpets in the book of the Revelation, but that's not the trumpet we're talking about here. That's a different thing altogether. The trumpet that is sounded here declares the victory of the Lord. 
His work of redemption accomplished. And the repatriation of the saints to glory. That's why that trumpet sounds. Now many people take up an argument concerning the use of the word rapture. And they'll say, well, that word isn't in the Bible. Well, that specific word isn't in the English Bible. But the word that is in the original language, which has been translated rapture. Now, if you're enraptured with someone, you're caught up with them, you're so in love with them. That's the idea of rapture. The word that is in the original language is the word harpazo, which means to be caught up in rapture. The word that the Apostle Paul also used in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. You'll remember it was there that Paul spoke of how he had been taken up to the third heaven. And the word used there, which says being taken up or caught up to the third heaven, is the word harpazo. It's the same word that is used when Philip was in the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. After the man had become a Christian and been baptized, the scripture tells us that the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. Harpazo. Suddenly gone. That's the word that we get our word rapture from. And the concept behind it is that it is a sudden event that is forceful and instantaneous. Let's try to give a little illustration here. Let's imagine a lorry road of steel and other things to being taken to the scrap metal merchant. The lorry drives in. And when it's parked in the right place. The electromagnet comes over. And as it passes over the lorry. All that is true metal. Is taken. And attached to the magnet. And the rubbish. And that which will be thrown away. Is left behind. It's a poor illustration. But it's the best that I could come up with. There is a day coming when we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and what will be left will face the judgment and the punishment of a righteous God. Think back to the days of Noah, the mockers, the scorners, We've got them today. When you speak on subjects like this, there are many, even among God's people, who are less than pleasant. It's as if it gets under the skin and into the conscience. And yes, I know there are one or two slightly different interpretations of what will lie ahead, but as far as far as I can understand it, the day will dawn 
And as we look at the signs of the times, and there are many of them, the day of our Saviour's coming to the clouds for his own cannot be far away. I want to briefly take a wee side step for a moment because some people get concerned about the whereabouts of those who are Christians who have died and gone on before. Let me say there is no such thing as soul sleep. The soul does not go to sleep when the believer dies. The soul enters immediately into the presence of the Lord. As the Savior spoke from the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> that place of, uh, of being consciously able to enjoy the presence of the Lord. The body is in the grave. If the Lord should tarry one day, this body will be put in a grave. But that's not the real me. That's just the body. The soul will instantaneously go into the presence of the Lord. At the rapture, something happens. The body is raised and changed. Living believers are changed. Given a new spiritual body. And it's that new spiritual body where the soul will, body and soul as it were, reunited. And yes, we will know one another. We will recognize one another. And so those who have gone on before, those loved ones, friends, family, whatever, if they are born again believers, they are already enjoying the presence of the Lord. But the scripture warns us, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There are many words that we use in our Christian vocabulary that aren't found in the Bible and we have no problem with them. It just seems to be that word rapture causes a bit of an issue for some trinity, divinity, incarnation. And there are many, many more. We use them when necessary. And we know exactly what they mean. But what I want to mention as we go on is some of the criticisms that we have that are put towards us concerning this particular phase of the Lord's return. One accusation is this. None of the early church fathers believed in the rapture as separate from the coming in power and great glory. Depends on your definition of church fathers. I tell you who did believe in it. 
The Lord Jesus taught the basics of the rapture in John 14. What exactly will happen? The Apostle Paul, as we've read in two occasions at least, mention it. As does the Apostle Peter. As does the Apostle John. So you see, the true church fathers believed in this wonderful event. It wasn't until about the Middle Ages that this whole subject of Bible prophecy seemed to all but disappear from church scenes. Through the Dark Ages, where Roman Catholicism held sway, there was no mention whatsoever of the return of the law. Superstition took over from Bible truth. And it was lost in so many ways. But we thank God that the truth of much of Bible prophecy was rediscovered, as we'll find out in a moment or two. <coughs> Another accusation is this, that the, the, the concept of the rapture is too new to be true. There are many people who would suggest that it was individuals, and you may or may not have heard of the names, John Darby for one, founder of what we would now call the exclusive brethren. People blame him for teaching about the rapture. Well, if you're going to blame him, you need to add on an awful lot more. You need to add on names such as Charles McIntosh, William Kelly, Charles Coates, Walter Scott, all in the 1800s, who brought to the fore again the great prophetic truths. In point of fact, the teaching of the rapture goes far, far further back than the life of John Nelson Darby. One of the problems that we had in our world was that for many, many decades, if not centuries, the Bible was read publicly in Latin. Most people in these days couldn't read anyway. You'd have thought it would have been decent to read it in English, but no, it was read in Latin. And so, people had to accept what was told to them by those who professed to be God's representatives here on planet earth. And it was during these times that the threads of prophecy seemed to get lost. In the midst of the Malay. There are many, many Bible teachers of great renown who in the last hundred years 
people whose ministry we would endorse, who have been very strong on the main themes of Bible prophecy. Let me mention some of them. Stephen Alford, F.B. Meyer, Alan Redpath, Campbell Morgan, Dwight Pentecost, etc., etc. Men who were open in their teaching of Bible prophecy, who brought it back to the fore. And God has used that message to bring many, many precious souls to himself. The number of people that I speak to who have come to faith as a result of some kind of preaching on end time prophecy, it is quite remarkable. One of them, my own daughter, several years ago, I go to Kelty Evangelical Church. There this morning we go for four Sundays, usually in May and in August. And a few years ago we were preaching through various prophetic matters. And we came home, nothing. Monday, nothing. Tuesday, I was visiting a, a, an elderly lady who was in the church that we used to go to. And my mobile rang. And I answered it. And the voice said, Dad, this is Abby. And I said, yeah, what do you want? Usually there was something wanted. She says, I want to tell you I've just become a Christian. And it was as a result of the message on the Sunday on the rapture of the church. It is a very, very powerful message. And it is a message that I believe that every Christian should take with them. That every Christian should have in the forefront of their mind to share with those. When the opportunity comes to share the gospel. Yes, the fact that Christ died and rose again. Yes, that he ascended back into glory, but we need to tell people one day he's coming again. And if that doesn't get us excited, there's something far wrong in our Christian faith, because it should. The King of kings and Lord of lords one day will come for you and come for me. Isn't that remarkable? He not only died for us, he will come for us and usher us into his eternal presence. One of the sad facts regarding this particular subject goes back, well, let me think how many years ago, possibly a hundred years ago, there was a young girl from Scotland who suffered from epilepsy and her father insisted that while she was having these epileptic fits she was receiving prophecies from the Lord 
And he wrote them down and he made a fortune out of selling the books. And many people would accuse us that we believe in something because of a teenage girl's so-called prophecies. Absolutely not. Her name was Margaret MacDonald if you ever come across it. And you can put that myth to bed. You see, sadly, religious people can very often do us great damage. I'll tell you something, and I hope it doesn't shock you. I'm not a religious person. I'm not interested in religion. I'm a Christian, which is something entirely different. But very often, religious people cause more damage to the claims of Christ than anyone else. Occasionally, Christians do it too. But we'll not go into that. This was an occurrence that happened over a number of years, and it's been used against the great truth of Bible prophecy. The acid test of our doctrine and of our teaching is not who originated it, but whether it's biblical or not. And if it's not biblical, it should be filed under B for Ben. Because the Bible, I trust, is what we stand on with regards to truth and light and as how we should live our life. But the greatest mix-up of all is when people take two separate events and try to make it the one. And I'll tell you what I mean. There is the rapture of the church, the next event in Bible prophecy, next event in the scroll of time, And once the church is taken from this scene of time, there is at least a seven year period where God will take up his dealings with his people Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. God isn't finished with Israel. Read your Old Testament. He made an unbreakable covenant with himself with regards to the people of Israel. A remnant will be restored in a day to come. The second group who will be judged in this seven year period is the Gentiles for their rejection of the gospel. But at the end of that seven year period something happens. The Lord Jesus leaves heaven again. And he stands on the Mount of Olives. And we leave heaven with him. We will come with him. And he will destroy the enemies of Israel. The people of Israel, the remnant, will be restored. And he will set up a kingdom. It's God willing, the next time I'm with you, we'll look at the millennium. He'll set up a kingdom. A rule of righteousness. And he will be the figurehead. 
But here's the interesting bit. You and I will rule and reign with him. In accordance to our faithfulness in the here and now. So when you read passages like Matthew 24, that's not the rapture. That's the coming in power and great glory. There's a difference. We need to see that because if we don't, we'll never understand Bible prophecy. It will become something like a bowl of spaghetti. All the strands mingled and tangled together. The only thing that's in common with the two events is the precious Lord Jesus. Because he will be the main character, as it were. In all of this, when he comes for his church, it is the bridegroom coming to receive his bride into the place that he has gone on before to prepare. That's what John 14 is all about. He's preparing a place. As the church, we are here. We have, according to Paul, as it were, we have been engaged to Christ. The seal of the Holy Spirit is as it were the engagement ring. But there is a, there is a marriage coming. And as it is in a Jewish marriage. There is a day coming when the, the bridegroom will leave the father's house. And he will come. And in a Jewish marriage in Bible times. The bridegroom would bring what are called the friends of the bridegroom with him. And as he drew, drew near to the home of the bride, he would sound the ram's horn, the trumpet. And the bride would be received and taken back to his father's house. And that's true for you and I. That is what will happen with regards to the church. He will come, the trumpet shall sound, and we shall be taken with him into glory to the Father's house. And the place that the Lord Jesus promised to prepare for you and me. The rapture and the glorious appearing, well... At the rapture, the Lord comes to the clouds of the air. No further. At his coming in power and glory, he returns to planet earth, to the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, he comes for his saints. At his second coming in power, he comes with his saints. At the rapture, he, ap he appears as the deliverer. When he comes in power, he appears as the warrior. At the rapture, he appears in grace. At his coming in power and glory, he returns in wrath. And as we've said, at the rapture, he appears as a bridegroom to receive his bride. 
At his glorious appearing, he appears as a glorious king. So these are not one and the same event. They are very different. And we must conclude from Scripture that first the rapture and then the second coming in power and great glory. The one thing about the rapture is this. There will be no sign foretelling it. And immediately people always say, well, what about the teaching in the Gospels that speaks about thunder and lightning and earthquakes, etc.? Not at the rapture, no. In his coming in power and great glory, yes. I'll tell you what will happen. As his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it will be split. You see, the Bible isn't some kind of dusty old book, as some would try to tell us it was. It actually is very, very relevant. It is that word imminent. That's the word that matters. You know, people say, well, we need to see this and we need to see that and we need to see something else. No, we don't. We'll not see anything. There will be a moment when literally for us, time will be no more. And we shall be instantly in our Saviour's presence. So you see that's our blessed hope. It's interesting. That's what the Jewish national anthem is. Hatikva. The hope. They have their hope. As far as they're concerned it has never been fulfilled yet. We have our hope and we know for certain that it will be fulfilled. It will be the culmination of all our hopes and dreams and our wildest imaginations. Nobody will to participate in the rapture and say, well, was that it? Oh no. Then and forever. In glory. With the Saviour. The late Adrian Rogers. Another great Bible teacher. With regards to Bible prophecy said this. The world is growing gloriously dark. And of course he was speaking as far as the believer is concerned. And the world that we live in is getting darker by the day. A world that is turning its back on God and at an alarming rate. But it all spells something. And for the Christian it spells this. Jesus is coming. 
I'm going to give you all something before you go away this evening. I wrote a letter. And it's a letter that you can leave for any friends or loved ones. The letter is written as if the rapture has taken place. Explaining exactly where you are, how it's happened, and why. Take it. You can sign it if you like. Leave it somewhere. Maybe your will. Maybe somewhere else. Because I think those who are left behind are due an explanation. Sadly for them, it will be too late. And the last sentence of the letter is not meant it's not meant to be funny it's not meant to take the mickey either it simply says really wish you were here there will be a day coming where millions of millions of Christians will disappear and the world may well come up with all sorts of excuse as to how it's happened and what has happened. Leave them the letter and you'll know. But in the meantime, in the growing darkness, there's one thing that we do need and it's hope. There are many Christians who are sitting down these days and they're tired and they're exhausted and they're wondering what to do and where to go. What's going to happen in the world? What's going to happen to their church? Etc, etc. Listen, we have a hope. And it's the greatest hope in the world. And above all these things, and something that will take us through all these things, is the hope of our Saviour's return. The day we rise to meet him. And so, I think it's time for Christians and churches, etc., we need to stop the questioning, we need to stop the arguing, arguing, we need to sort out the relationships that need to be sorted so that we're ready. Hope. The Bible says, in the light of all of these things, and it's the understatement of the epistles, comfort one another with these words. Is that a source of comfort this evening? Do we really believe that he's coming again? Or are we conveniently putting it in the back burner? Leaving it on the shelf because we don't really understand it all, neither do I. But the Bible is clear in one thing, this same Jesus will come.
again. Let's pray. Father God, as someone once said, this is too good to be true. We thank you that from your word we know that it is both good and true. <clears throat> that this is not the wishful thinking of some desperate people, but this is the clear message of your word. Help us to be encouraged and to be enthused. To do our best in the days that lie ahead. And to make sure our hearts and minds are focused on the right thing. Or should we say the right person? the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.